So maybe for just a little bit, I might talk about that word I'd mentioned, shakat, about what it means, rest or quietness in the Bible, because there's some very significant passages that use that word or the synonym of that word in the Greek that are pretty important for this subject. Shakat refers literally to a cessation of conflict, just like I told you is the definition of peace. So it's interesting that a word that is so often translated rest is almost exactly the same meaning as the word translated peace. A cessation, a ceasing, a stopping of conflict. It can mean a cessation of conflict between you and God. It can mean a cessation of conflict between two human beings. It can mean a cessation of conflict between two nations. There's a whole bunch of examples of it in the Old Testament that are used in that exact way. I'll just give you a couple. Joshua 11, 23rd verse, it says, Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said unto Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance unto Israel, according to their division by their tribes. And listen to this. And the land rested from war. That didn't mean they were all sleeping, and that's why they weren't fighting, because they were too tired and took a nap. That means they were in a state of peace. That's the word used in Judges, when one of the judges would drive back or defeat Israel's enemies, and it would say the land had rest. After the work of this particular judge, the land had rest. It just means the land was in a state of peace. There was no conflict going on. There's a real interesting example of it in Ruth in the third chapter after Boaz and Ruth have their encounter and Boaz tells Ruth he's going to do everything in his power to become the Goel for her, to become her husband and kinsman redeemer for her and Naomi. And in the 18th verse, Naomi says to Ruth, she knows Boaz. She has a familial connection to Boaz that Ruth didn't have. She knows Boaz's character. And I think by this time, Ruth certainly knew it as well. But Naomi's saying this to encourage Ruth. I think Ruth was a little bit anxious, you know, well, Boaz isn't the nearest kinsman after all, and maybe that guy is the one who's going to try to marry me or whatever, and I know Boaz is the one for me, Mom. I'm sure that's what she was saying, whether she said in those exact words. And I don't think he was just the one for her because she was attracted to him. I think she was attracted to his character. I think she was attracted to his spiritual life, there's no doubt. But Naomi says to her, and this is a way of saying, calm down. You may not realize this. This is a way of saying, don't be anxious. Sit still, my daughter. That may not sound like that. You may think she was fidgeting in her chair, you know, or couldn't sit down. But it's a colloquial type of expression to say, just calm down. Remember when Moses said to the children of Israel, stand still and see the salvation of God? He's talking about getting still in your spirit. Sitting still in your spirit. Look, just sit still. What a precious thing to say to Ruth. Sit still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall. Look, you don't know what's going to happen yet, so don't get anxious about this. But I'm going to tell you what she told her that was an incredibly encouraging thing. The man will not be in rest until he have finished the thing this day. She knew that about Boaz. Boaz is a man of his word. If he said he's going to do it, you need to calm down, you know, don't be anxious. But I'm going to tell you what, that man is not going to be, and here's all it meant. He will not be at peace until he gets this done. You know, there's some things you know just have to be done, and you just can't be at peace until you finish that project or get that job done or whatever. Boaz was not going to be at rest. That same exact word, shakat, it means peace, to be in a state of quietness. You know, Boaz is a picture of Christ. Christ is not going to be at peace either, and neither will this world until he's fully accomplished his purpose. He's not going to be at rest. Jesus isn't resting right now. He's working right now. He's never stopped working. And he's not going to stop working until he's brought the whole world to a state of rest, and then he can rest. Once he's brought the whole world to a state of rest. And you want to see a connecting point for that that's really simple? What did God do on the seventh day after his six days of what you might call labor? I don't know if it was labor for him. 
For God, it might have been nothing but thoughts and designs and directing his son on how he wanted things done. But what we think of as labor, after the creation, what did he do on the seventh day? Isn't that strange? What a strange thing. God doesn't need to rest, does he? No, the Bible tells us he doesn't slumber or sleep. So the Bible tells us he doesn't get tired. He doesn't need to rest. So why did he rest on the seventh day? Well, it's a picture for us. It has some connotations for Israel and the physical Sabbath that they were to keep. It has some connotations for the spiritual Sabbath we're to keep. Israel had a natural Sabbath, but that natural Sabbath was essentially a picture of something greater that was coming, just like the natural circumcision was a picture of a spiritual circumcision. That's why in the 15th chapter of Acts, when they were debating, do the Gentiles need to go through some of these particular rituals? They finally decided, no, they don't. You know why? Because the circumcision they were going through that was a natural circumcision was a picture of something greater. And it was a picture of the fact that one day the fleshly nature would be cut away and you'd be replaced with a new heart when the Spirit of God circumcises the heart. So the Sabbath has the same kind of connotations. It was meant as a very literal thing, but it's much deeper in its spiritual meaning and what it represents in terms of our responsibility. God rested on the seventh day. But soon after, God had to get back to work. You know why, right? Sin. Because man started doing the works of the flesh, God had to get back to work to bring creation back to where it needed to be. And there's a very simple evidence of that. Jesus made this statement that my father works hitherto up to this point is what that we don't say hitherto too often anymore, do we? Anybody say hitherto to somebody lately? Well, I don't know what kind of conversation you were having if you did, but... Some pretty formal, archaic terminology. My father worketh hitherto. He's been working up to this point. And I work. So both of them were working. And Jesus made it pretty clear God's been working all the way up to this point. God wouldn't have had to keep working if man hadn't started doing the works of the flesh. God could have rested. Didn't mean he was taking a break. It just means God wouldn't have to get directly involved in trying to make the creation perfect if man had kept it perfect. Now God has to reconstitute the creation back to the way he wanted it. And his son is working with him to do that. They're working in tandem. My father works and I work. They're both working. And Jesus was a witness of the fact that God had been working up to that point. God's been working this whole time to bring the creation back into the place it needs to be. And I'm working too because I am about, like he said when he was 12 years old, my father's business. My father has a business, and I'm the heir to that business. I'm his partner in that business in a secondary, lower sense perhaps, but I'm his partner in that business. So he's not going to be at peace until he brings this whole world into a state of peace. And then finally, and you see this in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, it says, after all rule and all authority and all power are brought under subjection to Jesus, then Jesus himself will be subject unto the one that brought the world into subjection to him, that God may be all in all. You know what that means? When Jesus steps back into that position where he's not in the forefront of the activity and he becomes subject in the sense that God is the one that is the principal actor at that point and Jesus is not the one still working on the project, it's because everything's been done. All the work is finished. I can sit down now and rest because my job has been completed. Again, it's not a repose necessarily. Rest like you need to recharge, but it's just he'll be in a state of peace because the whole world will be in a state of peace. 2 Kings 11.20 is an example of the way this language is used. Rest, talking about peace. It says, All the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet, and they slew Athaliah with the sword beside the king's house. That's a pretty rough way to get some quiet. 
they had a pretty rough individual who was making a lot of racket. And they had to kill her to quiet her voice. That didn't quite all the story. But Athaliah had usurped the throne from that young boy. Killed pretty much anyone that she thought could inherit it. She missed one. And they raised him in secret. And when he got old enough, just seven years old, just still a little boy, but got old enough they felt like they could move him towards the throne. Then his precious aunt and the priest brought him out before the people and caused a, it wasn't peaceful for a little while, caused a great conflict to get rid of Athaliah, the usurper. And they finally killed Athaliah. And listen to the word it used. This is the same word, shakat. It was quiet. Not just because Athaliah's shrill voice wasn't barking out commands as a dictator, but because there was peace in Israel. First Chronicles 22.9 says, Behold, a son shall be born to thee, who shall be a man of rest. It's talking to David about Solomon. And I will give him rest from all his enemies round about, for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. That's a pretty beautiful promise, isn't it? Same kind of word. There's a number of times in the Bible when the kings of Judah were ruling righteously. Solomon wasn't always an example of that, unfortunately. But when later kings of Judah were ruling righteously, removing the idols and immorality out of the land, that word was used to describe the state of the land. In Asa's early reign, in 2 Chronicles 14, it refers to the land being a state of quiet and rest. In Jehoshaphat's reign, in 2 Chronicles 20, it refers to the land being in a state of quiet. And it really shows you how powerfully deep the concept of rest is in the Bible. It's not just rest in terms of resting, in terms of confidence. That is true. Sometimes you can rest in God because you're just so confident in Him. You're not anxious. You're not in a state of worry because you're just resting in Him. Now, I've been heavily emphasizing the other side of that for a very simple reason. Usually, when people come across those kind of statements in the New Testament, like in Hebrews 3 and 4, they come to the conclusion that's only talking about your confidence in God, just trusting in Him. No matter how bad your life is, just trust in Him. Yes, you do have to have that kind of confidence in God, but rest and resting is a lot deeper than resting in Him. It's also resting from something. There's things you're not doing. I'll read a little bit of Hebrews 3 and 4, pieces and parts, and give you an idea of why I'm using it this way. Paul talks about the believers, New Covenant believers, needing to enter into their rest. And if you're paying close attention to these passages, he equates that with ceasing from their sinful works. Which means what he really means is when he says you need to enter into your rest, and you'll see it when we get to the fourth chapter, stopping from doing your sinful works. Remember what I said a little bit ago, how peace and rest are almost interchangeable in some places? If you want to be at peace with God, at rest with God, you are going to have to stop doing your sinful works. That's been at the very core of some of these statements. The seventh verse of the third chapter of Hebrews says, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. That means the way Israel provoked God in the wilderness, in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Now, here's two different kinds of rests in these two chapters. There's the rest God had for them. He wanted them to be in a state of peace. He wanted to give them the land and have no enemies there. Have those enemies wiped out and they would be able to enter into a state of complete peace in Canaan. But they never did enter into a state like that. Even when they conquered their enemies, there still were pockets of pagan elements in that land and around that land because they were not faithful to God. And it's not just faithful in terms of their obedience. That's part of it. The other side is they didn't have faith in God. That's where the two tie in. You know what Israel's problem was in the wilderness? 
The reason they kept complaining, the reason they kept crying, the reason they kept backbiting, the reason they kept challenging the leadership, it's not complicated. It's what we talked about earlier. A lack of faith in God. If you really believed in the God that gave Moses that position, then you'd be very careful to try to challenge Moses' position. Considering Moses was the one who held his rod up over the sea and it parted, it was Moses and Aaron, and by the way, Aaron first, for the first part of those plagues that went and challenged Pharaoh, you would think the fact that God backed those two men up would cause you to be very careful challenging them. But instead, they tried to take Aaron out of his position. They constantly bit at Moses' heels. And they were actually challenging God when they were doing it because those were the men of God God himself had chosen. Neither Moses nor Aaron even asked for the jobs. They didn't put out a resume. Those men didn't go there on an interview and say, Lord, I'd really like to lead your people. In fact, it was exactly the opposite. Moses didn't even want to do the job. And Aaron wasn't politicking for it. So the fact of the matter is you had two leaders that didn't even necessarily want to be the leaders that God gave those positions. And that's true of any good leader. If you have any sense, you'll realize that you're limited in many ways. And God, I'm not big enough to do this. That's where Solomon was very wise in his early part of his reign. God basically said, ask for something, I'll give it to you. Just give me wisdom to rule your people. They're a great people. It's too big for me, this job. That was the wisest thing Solomon said in asking for that wisdom. Solomon, unfortunately, took a different direction with his life and his choices later. The Israelites in the wilderness challenged the leadership. They challenged God. They were challenging God every single time they complained about food. When you make statements like, did you bring us out here to kill us? If you really believed that there is a true God there and that he loves you and that he's called you out into the wilderness, then you could just sit there quietly and wait for the food to show up. You don't have to scream and cry and throw temper tantrums until manna falls and quail gets sent and everything else. God was going to take care of everything. He was going to let the children of Israel starve. You realize God actually took care of them in spite of themselves? He provided for them as bad as their spirit was? What could he have done for them if they had maintained a good spirit? He even said in the Psalms, they limited the Holy One of Israel. Now, I want you to think about that because there's nothing you can do as a human that can limit God's power. But I'll tell you what you can limit. You can limit what God will do for you. And that's what they did. He said they turned back. This is exactly the parallel of this passage I'm reading. They turned back and they limited the Holy One of Israel. You know how you limit him? He wants to do something for you, but you don't believe in him strong enough to obey what he's asking you to do that will result in you getting what he wants to give you. He wanted to give them the promised land, but they came up, as you know the story, and 12 spies went across, and two came back, Joshua and Caleb, with a wonderful report. Ten came back with a terrible report. It's terrible. There's giants. There's problems. We can't do it. It's too big for us. It's not about you. It's about God. When you say it's too big for us, you just said God wasn't big enough. You want to talk about limiting the Holy One of Israel, He could have wiped out the whole land in a thought. And you're worried about how big they are. Who cares how big they are? That's what kind of powerful faith Caleb had, that it said about Caleb, he had another spirit. There's a perfect example, the word spirit used for a disposition. He had another disposition. They had a disposition of doubt. Caleb had such a blind faith in God, he would have walked over there by himself to fight the giants, I think. And in fact, he seemed pretty excited when they finally began allotting out the pieces and parts of the promised land after Moses' death and after Joshua was crossing over and so on. And he said, 
that mountain where the worst of them are at? Oh, let me have that. Let me have that. Give me the mountain where the giants are at. Caleb had never lost his passion or his strength. He not only wanted the giants 40 years younger than he was, he was 40 years younger the first time he was ready to go over and fight. This is 40 years later that Caleb says in his early 80s, give me the mountain where the giants are at. Don't give me an easy task. You know why? Because Caleb knew, I am at peace with God. I'm in a right relationship with God. So since I'm in a right relationship with God, give me the hardest battle to fight because God's on my side. Because I'm on God's side. I've been telling you that lately. It's just like David. Why would David worry about a giant? If he was absolutely certain God was on his side, who cares how big the enemy is if God's the one that's standing beside you? And that's exactly the point behind some of these statements. So it goes on here in Hebrews 3, he says, So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. This is the first part of the meaning of rest that Paul is using in these chapters. It's unbelief that won't allow you to rest in God. And he is layering this in several ways here. That's why you can't miss how deep this is. If they had just had confidence in God, they would have been able to be committed to anything God asked them to do. If they could have just trusted in God, they could have obeyed anything God required of them. They didn't trust enough in God, and that's why they couldn't enter into their rest, meaning into their inheritance where they would have conquered the land and been at peace and been in a time of prosperity and peace. But it wasn't true because they couldn't enter into it. And we won't enter into our rest, our inheritance either, if two different things happen. And you're going to see this in the next chapter. Number one, he just said this, take heed, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. The first thing we need to make sure we don't do is to lose our faith in God. Have a heart of unbelief. By the way, notice he just doesn't say that in some kind of a neutral way. It's an evil heart of unbelief. Because if you don't believe in God, that's an evil thing. I want you to think about how strong that is. If you don't really believe in God, that's an evil thing to not believe in God. So don't have an evil heart of unbelief. That means you've got to have complete confidence in God. There's the first side of the coin I've been talking about. The second side you're going to see really clear in the fourth chapter. Third chapter, he talks about don't depart from God, have an evil heart of unbelief. That's why they couldn't enter into their rest. But exhort one another daily. That's one way we can keep from having an evil heart of unbelief if we encourage each other. When you see that someone is down, you see that someone is questioning their faith, maybe they're questioning the love of God, maybe they're questioning some part of their faith that they don't think God's with them in something or cares about them, get around them and encourage them, saints. Don't let that condition continue. Exhort one another daily. He doesn't just say exhort one another once in a while. That's pretty strong, daily, meaning consistently encouraging the individual. While it is called today, lest that any of you be hardened to the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if... Now here's an interesting little statement because this is where it starts to transition more into what the other side of the coin is. If we hold the beginning of our confidence, see, you start with confidence, steadfast unto the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit, not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved 40 years? Was it not with them that had sinned? Notice that. Now we're talking about sin. Whose carcasses fell in the wilderness, and to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not. 
So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. You want peace? Remember, I'm paralleling peace and rest because they are almost synonymous in the Bible. You want peace? You want to be in a state of rest with God? You better have a powerful faith in Him. You better believe. And believing will produce obedience. You'll see that in the next chapter. The first verse of the fourth chapter says, Let us therefore fear. Now here you're going to see the other side of the coin more. Lest a promise being left of us entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest. See, there's how you begin to enter into your rest. Now again, we're talking about peace. We're still talking about peace, rest and peace. Remember I told you it starts with confidence and that confidence will produce obedience. It starts with trust and it results in obey. It starts with faith and it results in faithfulness. Those two are intrinsically linked if they're both genuine. So notice this. It says, we which have believed do enter into our rest. That's the beginning point. That's how you first get in and begin resting in your relationship with the Lord is by truly believing in Him. As he said, I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished in the foundation of the world, for he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and this is where, by the way, you can see a connection between this spiritual rest and what the Sabbath was truly about. And God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein. And by the way, when it says some must enter therein, some of that some, and I hope all of you are some of that some. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. That means the Israelites, the Jews under the Old Covenant, they didn't have the kind of faith that it took to enter into that type of relationship with God. Which, again, he's talking about Canaan as a physical inheritance, but you can see he's layering this. He's talking about the eventual inheritance you'll receive by entering into eternal relationship with God. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward, by the way, that word Jesus there is almost certainly meant to be the word Joshua, because it was Joshua that took him in the promised land. It's the same exact word in Greek. The Greek word translated Jesus is the same name of Joshua, so it's likely this might have been better translated Joshua. But Jesus could have given them rest too, so there's no problem interpreting either way. If Jesus or Joshua, either one, had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. That's talking to us. For he that entered into his rest, now pay close attention to this phrase, he that has entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us labor therefore, there's another interesting statement, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. In that last little phrase from talking about he that's entered into his rest has ceased from his works all the way down to where it says, lest any man fall after his own unbelief, there's the two sides of that coin. You have to believe and you've got to be obedient. You've got to stop doing your own works. And let me tell you what the obedient part is. Your works are the works of the flesh. No one in the right mind thinks those works there are works of righteousness. He's not telling you to don't do good things. God forbid. Why would you want to do good things? Of course you should do good things. The works that you need to stop doing are works of the flesh, works of sin. And if you stop doing the works of the flesh and the works of sin, you'll have entered into your rest. By the way, that's a spiritual Sabbath you'll be entering into. You'll be resting, and it'll be more than one day a week. 
Now, one day a week was just a picture of something that was intended to be every day of the week, 24 hours a day, eventually. Isaiah 30, 15, Thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and in rest shall you be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. And unfortunately, he had to add this at the end because Israel didn't respond to that appeal, and you would not. Notice are two things, returning and rest. If you want to take it from a new covenant standpoint, do you realize that when you're saved in an initial sense, your conversion, that's a returning? That's what conversion even means, a turnaround. You're returning. You were going the wrong direction away from God. And by accepting the blood of Christ through faith and through repentance, you have turned and returned to God. But it's not just returning. It's returning and rest that are the things that will cause you to be saved. And returning and in rest shall you be saved. It means you've got to rest from the works of the flesh. In quietness and in confidence will be your strength. When you're in that state of peace with God, it'll give you strength. I'm going to tell you what. I'll tell you why for a very, very simple reason. I can give you four or five reasons. I'll give you just one simple reason. If you are absolutely certain of the fact that you're in a state of peace with God, there is nothing you will not be willing to face. How much strength would that add to you? Knowing my life is right with God. I'm at peace with God. God loves me. I love God. I'm not at war with God in any facet of my life. Power will come to a person in a state like that. That will be your strength because you'll have strength in your inner man to know that I can stand against anything I need to stand against. What can stand against me if I'm at peace with God? If I'm on the Lord's side, what in heaven's name do I need to fear? Jeremiah 6.16, he says, Thus saith the Lord, stand you in the ways and see and ask for the old paths wherein is the good way. And walk therein, and notice what he says. This is one of those scriptures that I hope means more to you after this subject we've been talking about tonight. And you shall find rest for your souls. And once again, this terrible state, they said, we will not walk therein. There's a good path. There's a good way that God has for us. It's a way. It's not just the door. It's a way. The door gets you into the way. Once you're in the way, you've got to follow the path. But if you follow the path, it's the path of peace. It's another scripture we might talk about later, the way of peace that Jesus opened up. He opened up a path, a way of peace. I'm going to tell you, if you do it God's way, you'll be able to rest because you'll have fully entered into your rest. You'll have to labor to enter into your rest, but eventually you'll fully enter into your rest and then there won't be any labor left to do to reach that end result. Jeremiah 30.10 says, Jacob shall return and shall be in rest and be quiet and none shall make him afraid. Psalms 116.7 says, Return unto thy rest, O my soul, for the Lord had dealt bountifully with thee. That tells you a little ingredient, whether you realize it or not. If you like the song we sang this Sunday afternoon, Remind me, dear Lord. If you remember what the Lord's done for you, I'll tell you what, it'll give you a state of peace in your soul because you know the Lord's dealt bountifully with you. If you are convinced the Lord has dealt bountifully with you, and by the way, that is bigger than any problems you've faced. Because if God has touched you once in your entire life, that's a bountiful thing. Even if you faced one condition after another, if God has interacted with you, the almighty creator of heaven and earth has decided to personalize his relationship with you enough to touch you once, he's dealt bountifully with you. Amen? And if he's touched you over and over and over again in your life, doesn't mean everything has been the way you wanted it to be. But if again and again God has shown himself strong on your behalf, or at the very least has shown that he was present with you in your distress, he has dealt bountifully with you. Praise his holy name, saints. Praise his holy name. 
It'd be easy to rest when you know He's dealt bountifully. God's done me right. He's treated me right. He's never let me down. He's always been faithful to me. How hard is it to rest when you know God has always taken care of you? Jesus Himself talked about how He had a rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30 He said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He wasn't just talking about day laborers or slaves or people that were working hard on the farm. All those people were there. That wasn't what he was talking about, not at the deepest level. He was talking about giving them rest at the soul level. They're heavy laden, not just by burdens in a physical way, by sin. He wanted them to release that. Take my yoke, drop all that and take my yoke. You're still going to have a yoke, but do you want to bear the yoke of sin? You'll be heavy laden under that yoke. You can take my yoke. And though it might seem like it's heavy, he's going to tell you it's not heavy. It's light and it's easy compared to the yoke of sin. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. You shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden's light. Isaiah 11.10 prophesied that Jesus would fill that kind of a role when it says, In that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. I'm going to tell you, if you've experienced even a little taste of his rest, you know how glorious it is, don't you? Even a little taste. Let me tell you something, saints. Do you realize when you were filled with the Holy Ghost, you got a big drink of his rest? Of what it tastes like to enter into his rest? Because when the Spirit of God was filling you and you were under that full covering of the Spirit of God that is required to be born again, it's not a partial covering. You've got to be entirely immersed in the Spirit. All baptisms are full immersion. You've got to be entirely immersed, entirely saturated. Every fiber of your being, the Spirit has to be saturating. And I'm going to tell you what, when that happened, you were standing there at rest with God. While you were in the Spirit, when you were filled with the Holy Ghost, age, you were fully at rest with God for that little bit of time. He gave you a foretaste of glory divine to let you know exactly what it's like. This is what it tastes like. Now, what would it feel like? And I'm not talking about walking around speaking in tongues. That's just a manifestation to let you know the Spirit was really there. What would it feel like to feel what you felt at the moment you were filled with the Holy Ghost walking around all the time? What would that feel like? I don't mean that it would cause you to shake or to manifest in some physical or audible way. I just mean that inner feeling you felt, that peace. It was peace, wasn't it? That incredible weight that was lifted, just like when the weight of sin was lifted by the blood of Christ. You know what was lifted this time? When the blood of Christ washes away your sins, the weight of all that past sin is lifted and tossed into the depths of the sea, far as the east is from the west. It's gone, it's gone, it's gone. If you, in genuine faith and with genuine repentance, called on the Lord, it is gone. Whatever you did is done. It's no longer something you're held accountable for. And that whole weight just lifted and was removed. You know you felt it if it was genuine. You better have felt it. But I'll tell you the other side of that. You know what happens when you receive the Holy Spirit? The mechanism inside of you that continues to cause you to sin was brought to a state of rest just long enough for God to get his hands in there because you know if you're on the operating table and someone's doing extremely delicate work, they do need to put you to sleep because the pain and the startlement or maybe even looking and seeing what kind of crazy object is moving towards your chest cavity is going to cause you to jerk or shake or who knows what. And untold damage could be done because you're moving on the operating table. You know what God did to you when you received the Holy Spirit? He put the old man fully to sleep. 
And when you were fully in the spirit, the old man was entirely out cold. The new man was stretching his muscles inside of your spiritual being. And the old man was laying in his bed, getting ready to die one of these days. Praise his holy name. I'm praising God's, not the old man's. The old man was getting ready to enter into his rest. He's going to rest too one of these days. He's going to rest in death. But the new man, you entered into your rest when you received the Holy Ghost, you know. You didn't stay there, but you entered in. You walked into the holy place, saints. If you want to know the types and shadows and pictures of the tabernacle or temple, you walked into the holy place right under the light of the seven golden candlesticks. That scent of that bread coming up off the table of showbread and that precious incense coming off the golden altar and the presence of the Almighty right on the other side of the veil. Praise His holy name. And here you stood under all those sheets of gold in that place of purity. The Spirit of the living God rushing through your body at rest and at peace with God. Makes you want to stay there if you know what it really is. That's what it means to live and walk in the Spirit. To get back to that place where your life is bound up with Christ in His death and in His life. My Lord, how in the world do you not talk for more than two hours? Amen, Brother Lee. You know why you felt that clean? The blood of Jesus cleansed your sin in a more powerful way than anything has ever done previously. But when the Spirit of God circumcised your heart and began the process of bringing you into your rest, the engine that causes the sin stopped running. Not permanently, but when you were fully in the Spirit, the engine that keeps sin going stopped running. And I'm going to tell you what, you will feel better than you ever did in your life. That is a reason why you ought to cry from the housetops and try to help everybody you can to experience whatever they can from the Lord. If you have not been filled with the Holy Ghost, my Lord, you have no idea what you've missed out on. You might have had your sins washed away, but you haven't gotten the foretaste of what is coming, the power of the world to come. There is a power that God invests in His children when He adopts you into His household intended to make you a son or daughter of the Most High by birth and then by full development. And that development starts with Him letting you have a taste of what the end result will be like. Isn't that a nice way to do it? It's like somebody telling you, we're going to build this beautiful house. It's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of time. It's going to be a dirty job. Some days all you'll see is the wood and maybe the concrete or you'll think, what in the world? How is it ever going to look like that? But then he pulls out a beautiful picture of a finished house and says, this is what it'll look like when we're done. Do you know that's what God did when he filled you with the Holy Spirit? He said, this is what it'll feel like when we're done. You'll be living like this for the rest of your life. The engine will stop running that keeps sin working you'll be at rest. You'll know what clean is. Praise His holy name. His rest will be glorious, won't it? That's that way of peace I was talking about in Romans 3, 17 to 18. He talked about the wicked and he said, the way of peace have they not known. And they're like the troubled sea, Isaiah said in Isaiah 57, 20. It cannot rest. Notice these little phrases. The wicked can't rest. You know why they can't rest? That engine is going a mile a minute. It is going at high speed, looking for more evil to do. And God warned Israel never to enter into that kind of a state. Micah 2.10, he said, Arise and depart. Get away from these false gods you're worshiping. For this is not your rest. You can never rest in false religion. It's polluted. It shall destroy you, even with a sore destruction.
Isaiah 28, 11 to 12 is an example of why the Holy Spirit is a picture of that. You want a evidence of why the Holy Spirit is a picture of entering into your rest? With stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people to whom he said, this is the rest. You start entering into it when you have that experience. Wherewith you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the freshing, yet they would not hear. So I told you it's a symbol of the Sabbath rest. All the Sabbaths were picturing that kind of a rest, a ceasing from spiritual labor. They were ceasing from natural labor. Under the new covenant, it's not natural labor that we need to focus on ceasing from. It's spiritual labor that we need to focus on. We need to stop doing the works of the flesh. It's moved beyond just taking a one-day Sabbath. Now, every day should be a spiritual Sabbath. And when that finally reaches its culmination in the 7,000th year, so to speak, of this creation, the seventh prophetic day of creation, we enter in the millennial reign, the whole earth will finally be at rest. And one of my favorite passages about the millennial reign, the entire Bible, Isaiah 14, 7, the whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into singing. What a day that'll be. I'm going to quote the words of this song as we get ready to close out. We're going to close out with prayer. See if Brother Lee will close us with prayer. This song was written in 1887, I mentioned earlier, by John Samus. And I think it's very interesting, the words of this song, how perfectly parallel they are with this subject we're talking about. It's the old song, Trust and Obey. When we walk with the Lord, think about how similar this is to some of the verses we were reading. In the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way. While we do His good will, He abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but His smile quickly drives it away. Not a doubt or a fear. I want you to think about how this relates so deeply to what we're talking about, the two sides of what peace and rest are about. Not a doubt or a fear, not a sigh or a tear can abide while we trust and obey. Not a burden we bear, not a sorrow we share, but our toil He doth richly repay. Not a grief or a loss, not a frown or a cross, but is blessed if we trust and obey. But we never can prove the delights of His love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor He shows, for the joy, and by the way, peace, He bestows are for them who will trust and obey. Then in fellowship sweet, we will sit at His feet or we'll walk by His side in the way. What He says we will do, where He sends we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. And I think everyone knows the chorus, the refrain. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus and to be at peace with God, but to trust and obey. Bless His mighty name. Well, we've had a few times this weekend that I think that if we had just let go, we might have taken off. I don't know if all of you noticed it, but Ryan got to preaching here in the practice. I didn't know what was going on. I was down there talking. I heard somebody preaching away, and I turned around. <laughs> Ryan got a hold of something talking to the people in the practice this afternoon. The Spirit's just been tender and present here this whole time, hadn't it? We felt the covering of the Lord, His strength, His encouragement, this beautiful song at the end of the service today about trusting the Lord. It was the Lord talking to us about trusting Him, that song Sister Heather wrote. Beautiful song. As we were singing this song here just a moment ago, I was thinking of it in terms of even the subject we've been talking about, these fruit of the Spirit, and how He is preparing us right now to be a sanctuary. 
That's the underlying theme of really what this type of a class is about. The subject of the fruit of the Spirit. If and when, it's not just an if, it's a when. If God started it in you and you don't run away, you don't jump off the potter's wheel, as Brother Bishop was talking about. If you stay on the wheel, then the work will get completed in your life. And when he's done with you, you will be just what we were singing about here tonight, a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. A sanctuary that his spirit cannot just inhabit in the present right now while it's working on you, but that you'll be an eternal habitation for the spirit of God. You'll be in an eternal relationship with God. What a good way to start our service this evening. We want the Lord to prepare us to be a sanctuary. Part of that preparation is the development of the fruit of the spirit in our life. What God has to do in your life that will take you from the guttermost to the uttermost, so to speak, that'll take you from where you start to where he intends to finish your life is going to have to be a tandem work between your submission to his will and your discipline of your own will and God working on issues in your life that you just cannot work on yourself. They're beyond your human capacity. We need God for that, don't we? We have a responsibility to live the holiest and cleanest life we can. There's some things that it's going to take God to change some of the things within us. You were giving some of your testimony, Brother Bishop, and I was thinking you and I, in some areas of our testimony, have a lot of similarities in terms of our rejection of God, our pushing back towards His will for our lives, and we each express that in different ways, but God has to change who you are if He's going to enter into relationship with you. There's going to have to be some things happen to you that change who you are. Change the way you do things. Change the way you think. And when we're thinking about the fruit of the Spirit, we're thinking about the things that drive our thoughts and our actions, you know. If you're talking about something like love, you know love is something that is a thought, a feeling, but far more importantly, it's an action. If you're thinking about joy, if you're thinking about peace, you can want to feel peace. But in order for you to feel peace, you're going to have to do some certain prerequisites to meet that feeling. Otherwise, it won't be peace that lasts for very long. I'm going to probably review, if you want to call it that, just a few things we talked about in some of the last weeks since we've had such a scattered different attendance with all the sickness and travel and things going on. One of the things I think is really important, I want everybody to grasp about peace, is the two sides of it that I think Brother John might have mentioned this afternoon, talking about the difference between the faith we have in God and our faithfulness to that faith, the confidence we have in God, and I had a few different phrases like this in my head, and the commitment we have to God. And what Brother John said was absolutely right. If you really have confidence in God, there isn't any challenge to you being committed to Him. If you're completely sure, you've got to be completely sure about a number of things. You've got to be completely sure He really exists. Nothing else is going to matter about your confidence in Him if you don't believe that. If you think, well, God loves me, but I'm not sure He's real. What would that mean? How valuable could His love be if you're not even sure of His reality? You have to begin by knowing that He is. That's why Hebrews 11 says that we must know that He is and that He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek after Him. And there's at least three key things right in that little phrase. Number one, He is. He's real. Number two, He's a rewarder. Isn't that nice? He could be real, but He could hate humans, you know. (laughs) He's not going to reward you at all. He's after you. But he's a rewarder. And then there's a third thing in there, whether you realize it or not. Don't blend that little last phrase together into one thought, a rewarder of them that diligently seek after him. Don't forget the last part, them that diligently seek after him, which means he is, he's real, 
he's intending to reward individuals, but those individuals are going to have to diligently seek after him. So you need to know that he is, but you also have to diligently seek after him. Do you see how even in that little verse is the point I'm trying to make about peace, how you have to have faith in God to have peace? You've got to be faithful to God to have peace. You've got to know that he is. I didn't even think of tying that verse in. It just struck me just now. You've got to know that he is a rewarder to them that diligently seek after him, which means I'm going to do everything in my power to be in right relationship with the Lord. Because since I know he's real and I know he rewards those that are in right relationship, that's what it means to diligently seek after him. You know, you're not diligently seeking after him to get a present. You're not diligently seeking after him to receive some favor in spite of yourself. You're diligently seeking after a relationship with him. I really want to be in a relationship with him. And by the way, if you've got any sense, you need to add another word to that sentence. I really want to be in a right relationship with him because a lot of folks want to be in a relationship with the Lord, but they want to be in a relationship with the Lord on their terms, not on his terms, on their terms. I'll come to church at these times when I'm comfortable. I'll hold myself accountable to a standard of righteousness on my terms, things that I think are reasonable requests, you know. I promise you anything God asks you is reasonable. It may not be always understandable, but it's always reasonable. Now, listen to what I'm saying. There's a lot of times God asks us to do things or even puts us through things. We're thinking, why, Lord? But once you see the results of what he puts you through, you'll realize it may not have been understandable in the moment, but it was reasonable. In fact, it was more than reasonable. It's the thing that helped to save my soul. It's the thing that helped to deliver me from whatever condition I was in. I may not have understood why he asked me to do it. And that's why even some of the mysterious requests he has of us in terms of even certain things he wants us to do with our lives may not be always something we can comprehend and figure out with some kind of a logic or rationality. But I promise you, if you give your life into the caretaking of God, what will end up, you will realize that was so reasonable what he asked. He asked me to give that up. Now I realize what I can get in return because I gave that up. I didn't have enough room for the things God wanted me to have because I had so many of my own things and I gave up some of my things and he gave me something so much better. That's pretty reasonable, isn't it? Somebody wants to make an exchange with you. They want you to give something up that does very little value. You may think it has tremendous value, but you don't know enough about value. So you think it's got tremendous value, but he wants you to give that up because he's got something so much better for you. We don't realize how much better it is. And we're sometimes in our comfort zone about what we already have. I don't want to give this up, whatever it is that God wants us to give up. Now, that can get into all kinds of things. And the reason I'm being so general on that is because it's very personal. Not everybody is the same things. Different people have different issues they're dealing with. Different people have different things that God may want them to add to their lives or subtract from their lives. So it's a little harder to get into the specifics because every person in this building may have something slightly different, a different set of ingredients to get you to the end result God wants for your life than somebody else in the building has. This is not a cookie cutter Christianity. You cannot simply come up with a certain recipe. The end result is going to look and taste exactly the same. What do you think of that? Talk about mysterious. I want you to think about what I'm about to say. And I'll explain it because it's not going to sound logical to begin with, I don't think. In fact, thinking about it, I know it's not going to sound logical, but I want you to just listen to me. Every one of us is intended to produce a product. Think about a dish that you're preparing or something you're baking in the oven, you know. Every one of us is intended to produce a certain product that tastes and looks and smells and every other quality about it exactly the same as the original product. The original product is Christ, you know. So we're to be exactly like Christ in every way, but... The exact methods to get you there may not always be the same. One person may say you need to add a few dashes of such and such. 
Someone else may need to say you need a little more of that. Let's say you were making a recipe and you already had a cup of sugar. It had already been added. And maybe somebody else didn't have any sugar in their recipe at all. Well, are they going to need more sugar when they realize what you really need is three cups? Well, you'll need two more. They'll need three, won't they? Some people have a little less sweetness in them, I'm sorry to say, and they're going to need a little more sugar in their recipe to get them to the end result of being like Jesus. So even though you might think the ingredients are exactly the same, they are. They're not exactly the same for each one of us because some of us have some of the ingredients that the Lord's already worked into our life or our experiences have worked into our life, but those ingredients need to be added or subtracted until they come to the exact recipe that's required. It might be different for each one of us. Some of us may need more of something than someone else. Some of us may need to get rid of more things than somebody else. In our case, our past is rough as we were when we were young. Talking to Brother Bishop, not to all of you necessarily. You might have been too, but we might have had a lot of things we needed subtracted. A lot of things God might have wanted to take out of us. He knows what he needs to take out. He knows what he needs to add to get to the end result. And that's part of what's outside of our purview because I don't know the exact measurement of certain qualities I need in my life. If I did, it might create anxiety or it might create arrogance, either one. I might get anxious thinking I'm so far from it. And if I found out I was closer than I thought, I could get arrogant, couldn't I? And thinking, well, look at me. I got a lot of love. That'd probably be the last one of them, maybe for me. I hope not. I hope love is something I have a lot of, but maybe patience. Let's use patience. That's an easy one. I do not necessarily have a lot of patience. And that's one of the fruit we need to develop in our lives, isn't it? So I may need a lot more patience. You may be as patient as Job. And by the way, people call Job patient, but I'm not sure how patient Job was. Listen to some of the stuff he said. Job got riled up a few times, but he didn't curse God, did he? So I told you there are two different sides to peace. Confidence in God creates peace, the two ingredients, and commitment to God. Confidence has to begin first. Going back to Hebrews, you have to know that he is. You've got to really believe that he is. Anything else in terms of your relationship with him is not going to be built on a very solid foundation if you don't really believe that he is. Then you've got to know that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, in order to know that, you're going to have to have some other things produced in your life. You're going to have to have some experiences with God. You're going to have to have some times that you receive things from the Lord that maybe you weren't even expecting to receive, or you give some things up on faith, on faith, meaning I don't know if the Lord will meet me, but I know what he's asking of me and I'll give it up, even though I'm not sure if he'll meet my need that will be created by me giving that up. And he does. And that just teaches you that he's a rewarder. You can be talking about a wide range of things, but God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek after Him. So one side of it is that your peace begins, your peace with the Lord. And by the way, I'm talking about peace in a general way. And when you talk about the fruit of peace, it may be a little bit more specific. But the point is that the fruit of peace is just the product of you having that peace. You've got that fruit in your life because of these two things that have developed in you. One of them, as I've said several times, I'll repeat it once more. One of them is confidence in God, trust in God, faith in God. That's the first ingredient that precedes the other. The other one is faithfulness to God, obedience to God, commitment to God. Those are the two things that have to go into the package of peace to create the fruit of peace. That fruit will never come to its fruition until both of those things come to a level of full maturity. You are completely confident in God. And you are completely committed to God. Somebody in a state like that, it'll be an easy thing for the fruit of peace to come to full development in their life because it's a byproduct of those two things. So to fully be at peace with God, you have to fully be at rest in God. 
That means in your relationship with Him, in your confidence and trust in Him, and you've got to be fully at rest with God, meaning you're not fighting Him. You're not in conflict with God. There's no battle going on anymore. Now, there is with all of us right now. But I mean, you come to a place where the battle with God has stopped. It's ended. And listen, I've said this, I don't know how many times, I don't know why I've felt such a burden to say it, but I've said this many times these last couple years. It is not an issue of your will being subjugated to his will by force. It is not an issue of your will being made slave to him as a master. Like, I really want to do a lot of things, but in order for me to be in a relationship with God, I've got to force myself to go against my own desires. Well, you will in the beginning for sure. But God wants you to come to a place where your desires match his. And if your desires match his, there's no slavery in that. That's perfect freedom. That means you get to do whatever you want. Everybody likes that, don't you? Yeah, I do too, Sister Marilyn. You're one of the most honest ones in here. I was hoping everybody would shout out yes, but most people are afraid to shout yes at that. Everybody, do you want to shout out yes? Marilyn did it for you. She saved you all. Listen, everybody wants their own way, right? Now no one's going to answer. <laughs> you know you do, even if you don't answer. We all want our own way. Even sometimes in our way isn't the right way. We still want it. Let me tell you something. When your way is just like the way of God, when you think like Him and you feel like Him, the things He wants are what you want, you'll always be able to have your way and you'll have eternal life to boot. How about that? So the goal that we want is to be transformed into the image of Christ, who is the image of God, meaning we want to be a reflection of Christ in the same way Christ is a reflection of God. And when we are, there'll come a place in our lives where our will will be so like the will of God, there won't be any fight going on anymore at all because there isn't anything to fight with. We're always getting our way. Everything we want is what we do. That sounds pretty selfish, doesn't it? But when it's all holy, it's not a bit selfish. When it's all righteous, it's not a bit selfish. So we come to a place where what God wants is what we want. Things God thinks about are the type of things we would think about. The things God feels are the type of way we feel. And that is how we finally come to a place. By the way, it's true of a number of these fruit. We're going to talk about that with every one of these fruit. But that's how you come to a place of perfect peace. Don't you feel at peace when you've gotten the things you want? But don't you notice that in this present life, that doesn't last long? You get something you want, and I don't just mean some material thing. Maybe it's love that you wanted. It could be things that are very important. You get something you want or feel that you need, and you feel at peace, but that peace isn't everlasting, is it? Challenges arise, or there's something else you want, or there's something more you want out of the relationship or whatever. There's always something else that's going to cause you to lose that feeling where you're looking for something more. I don't mean leaving a relationship. I'm talking about there's always something deeper, something more that you're seeking. Make it much simpler. We're talking about some material you know. We all get certain things we want, and maybe we want them for a long time, and finally we get that thing we wanted to buy. I'm just using a material example. And it's not long after that that there's something else on the wish list. You know that, right? It's almost immediate there's something else on the wish list. Kids are worse about it in some way than adults, but it's probably because they're more honest in their expressions. We pretend that we're not feeling the same thing they're feeling, but the kids are like, you know, if you just give me this, I won't want anything else forever. Hmm. <laughs> or if you just give me this, I won't want anything else for at least another year or so. No, no, it'll be hours more likely. We as adults aren't quite as honest as the children are. The fact is we're just as bad. If I just get that new whatever... Then your eyes are looking for the next thing. You know why that is? Because there's no satisfaction 
in owning things. It's almost like a sugar rush, you know. There's a little burst of good feeling for a while, but then it's on to the next thing to keep that feeling alive. It's almost like an addiction. You've just got to keep feeding it. But you know, when you finally come to that place of perfect peace, you're not in that state anymore where there's a constant need for something more because you have everything you could ever dream of. You know, that's part of the promise of our relationship with the Lord, that we could have beyond anything we could even ask, or if you want to use a different word for the way it's translated in the King James, or even dream of. Now you think, well, I'd be frustrated if I didn't have something else to shoot for. (laughs) You'll have things to do. It's not that. But you won't be anxious about, well, I don't have this. Anxiety leaves, and that is very important when it comes to your spiritual life. So we do have to believe that he is who he says he is. We have to believe that he's willing and able to do all that he says he's going to do, as well as the fact that what he wants, not just globally, not just for the church, but for you individually, is what's best. Those three things are very important. He is, that he exists, that he's real, that he's genuine, that he is who he says he is too. Not just that there's a God out there, but he's the God we see in the Bible, a God that's righteous, holy, just, full of love, full of mercy, but he's also full of justice. He is who he says he is, which encompasses the next one. He's able to do exactly what he says he's able to do. He has the power and the ability to provide for anything that you might ever need. And then he has your best interest at heart. How in the world would you have a challenge with following someone with all three of those characteristics? He is who he says he is, and that is a wonderful thing. He can do everything he says he can do, and he wants to do some wonderful things for you. Wouldn't be too hard if you really believed all those things. That's where our faith is lacking, is that somewhere within we are questioning one or all of those things, and thus we haven't fully submitted our lives to him. And if you haven't fully submitted your life to him, you can never fully have peace. And that's the point, because somewhere within you, there's still a conflict. You're still wanting to be able to do things that would be displeasing to him.